The sermon text this morning is Genesis chapter 10, verse 1 through chapter 11, verse 9. I'll be reading from Genesis 10, verse 32 through chapter 11, verse 9. These are the clans of the sons of Noah, according to their genealogies and their nations. And from these, the nations spread abroad on the earth after the flood. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower, which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they have all one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and there confuse their language, so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth, and from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. I think most of us will quickly agree that learning another language is a, it's a real challenge. I mean, it's different words, different sentence structure. It's altogether a confusing experience. Uh, most of us have experienced this in high school or uh, learning Spanish or German or something like that. But when Carol and I went overseas to Austria, uh, we had to speak the language of uh, German language. And uh, we didn't have a lot of training on this side, maybe about three months. And um, so we get over there and we had no small amount of problems with the language. But one specific example with Carol, uh, she was trying to get directions to go to a town uh, called Baden. And Baden in German means to bathe. And so she in, um, went up to a stranger, she was lost, went up to a stranger a man, and said in German, uh, I'm going to Baden, can you give me directions? And um, he started to laugh, and uh, you guys know German pretty well, and, uh, but he started to laugh, and, um, and she was, I think, a little embarrassed, maybe a little miffed, and then in German she said, do you speak English? And of course he said, yes, I do, so she got directions. So she came home and told me about it, and we kind of commiserated and that sort of thing. And then she tells a friend of ours, we had a, a ministry partner, a Swiss woman, Miriam. She spoke German. And Carol told her the same story, and she started to laugh. And Carol said, what did I say? And she goes, well, you came up to a perfect stranger, and you say, listen, I'm going to take a bath. Can you give me directions? And um, anyways, languages are funny. They're difficult. They're challenging. They're confusing. It, have you ever wondered, you know, where all these languages and nations and cultures come from? It's really what our text is about in chapter 10 and chapter 11. We have here the origin of the nations. We have this picture of the distribution of nations and languages. And we have the reason for these things. We have that in chapter 11. And the reason for the different nations and languages and cultures is really at the heart of it, the pride of men and women. I mean, pride is the oldest of sins. It's the mother of sins. It was in the heart of Adam and Eve. 
It was in the heart of the men and women in the Tower of Babel. You know, pride is an ugly thing. They say it's that one. Uh, pride is a disease that makes everybody else sick but the one who has it. It, it brings division. It brings harm to our relationships. Not just personal, but national, even global. And God deals with the pride of man by bringing about a division of languages and nations. But by God's grace, he also brings about a restoration. Just as we heard Miguel teach last week, judgment followed by restoration. That's what we see over and over in Genesis. He brings judgment, divides the languages, so as to bring greater grace in the uniting of the languages around a new word, the gospel. So let's look at two things here. First, this table of nations, this origin of the nations in chapter 10. And then we're going to look at chapter 11, which is really the scattering of the nations, where man may propose, but God will dispose. So look with me in 10. If you have your Bibles open, look at 10.1. Let me just read the first verse. It says, these are the generations of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Jepheth. Sons were born to them after the flood. So uh, Moses is beginning in chapter 10. He's chronicling all the generations that will follow Noah, Shem, Ham, Jepheth. His three sons and their sons and their sons. Now, the genealogy, if you go back and read through chapter 10, you're going to find the genealogy is not a linear genealogy. It's not this, the, the son of this person and the son of this person and the son of this person. It's more of a segmented genealogy. There's names, there's places, there's people. It's like a family tree. You know, many, even evangelical, non-evangelical scholars will say that this is probably the most ancient and accurate distribution of nations. If you're to go back and read it, you'll see it's very symmetrical. It's the three sons. They have 70 nations. It begins with Jepheth. That's the son that is probably furthest away from Israel. And then he speaks about the descendants of Ham. Ham are going to be the troublesome neighbors of Israel in the Middle East. And then there is, of course, a Shem. And, and that is going to be the line from which Abraham, which we're going to see next week, comes. That's very important. In fact, look with me at 32. He says, these are the clans of the sons of Noah, according to the genealogies and their nations. And from these, the nations spread abroad on the earth after the flood. So what do we do with this? I mean, here we have this distribution of nations. What do we, is it really important? Some theologians encourage you not even to preach it because it's just this table of nations. I think that's foolish. Remember back in Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 9, God had said to both Adam and to Noah, be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. This is what's happening. They're filling the earth. They're spreading abroad. They're going out as God had said. Now, remember the context. Moses is speaking to the people of Israel. They've been in bondage and slavery in Egypt. They've been brought out, and they're about to enter the promised land. He is giving the nation of Israel a brief history lesson. These are the nations around you. These are the nations with whom you're going to live. These are the nations with whom you're going to minister, ultimately. Let's not miss the point here. There's a theological truth embedded here too you notice that it ends on Shem now he's not the last son born but he's the last son mentioned and what Moses is giving us a clue because through Shem will come Abraham and Abraham will be the one sent by God to bring about a blessing to the nations 
So you have all these nations from one, one will be drawn to go back to bless all the... Shem will bring about the redemptive purposes through his lineage, Abraham, and then David. And then we're going to see Jesus bring about a blessing to all the nations. So you say, well, that's nice to know, but what am I walking away with? What's a takeaway for me? Well, number one, you, do, you see clearly we're all united. I mean, we're all from the same family. I mean, I, I get that it seems, you know, our divisions are hopeless in terms of racial and religious and linguistic and cultural. It seems like we can't agree on the time of day. And yet we see there was only one family that came out of the ark. There's only one family. I mean, the intent here that Moses is saying is we're interrelated. I know we're different. I know there's much diversity among us. But we come from the same family. I mean, I mean the, the same family tree. We're together. I mean, it, it at least informs the Christian that when you look around, even at the diversity of our own church here, you know, and differences tend to bring up points of comparison, tends to bring up condescension. Uh, the, the passage clearly warns us to not look upon people with disdain based on color or culture or style. I mean, we're, we're not to see them. You know, that's what we tend to do. I, I think we tend to congregate around people that are like us and people that are different than us. We tend to find out what those differences are and find them to be less than that which is in us. But if we all come from the same family tree, then we're all kind of cousins. You know, back in the early 20th century, uh, theological liberals would speak about the brotherhood of man. I wouldn't advance that in the way that they meant it, but I do appreciate the cousinhood of man. That we're to love one another. That we're not to maintain enmity. We're not to give way to racial divisions. We're not to give way to cultural critiques. That there's a beauty in the diversity as it finds unity around the gospel. You know, we all have families that have an uncle fester in the basement. We all have families that have the uncle or the aunt or somebody that's kind of embarrassed. We all have that. And yet we kind of give way to them. We kind of endure them. Well, that's just uncle so-and-so. They're family. You know, we love them. I, I know he's hard to deal with, but we love him. That's kind of the, the attitude I'm speaking about here. You know, we, we have uh, differences with people, and, and we, because we're in the same family, we're trying, and we, particularly those of you who would affirm faith in Christ, you're saying, no, I get it. Only one family left the ark. We're all associated. We're all interrelated one another. But not only does it remind us that we're united, uh, we're also to have a concern for the nations. There are 70 nations listed in this table of nations, 70. And as I said, particularly next week we'll see it, but from these families, one was drawn to bless them. That God's intent in calling Abraham, and we see it in chapter 12, verse 3, he will, his name will be great and he will bless the nations. How's he going to bless the nation? Well, the seed of the woman in Genesis 3 will be the offspring of Abraham, will be the offspring of David, and then he will, of course, bring forth Christ. Christ will bless the nations. That's why it shouldn't surprise you when you look at Luke 10 
And Jesus, on his first evangelistic journey, he sends disciples out to proclaim the kingdom of God is here. How many does he send out? Well, he doesn't send out 69, and he doesn't send out 71. He sends out 70. Why would he choose 70 disciples to send out on an evangelistic rally to declare the kingdom of God has come? Because of 70 nations. God has a concern for the nations. Do we have the same concern? You know, I, I think, particularly because of our prosperity and our safety, we tend to clump easily. We, we tend to kind of get this myopic view of life. As long as I'm okay, then everything is okay. And yet here we see God as a concern. He knows them by name. Do you have a concern for the nations? I mean, those, it, it, it's worthy to ask yourself, particularly if you're younger, and if you're not so young but you're more mobile, how is that concern for the nations being exercised? You know, 20% of our budget, over $200,000, is given to missions every year. Local, national, and global. The bulk often going to global. We have prioritized our budget to show a concern for the nation. What is your concern? Do you think about them? Do you pray for them? Now, I know we get kind of in our little bubble, in our little echo chamber, in a little silo, and we forget that the world's a lot bigger. But let me, let me encourage you to pray about this. Ask God to give you a desire for the nations. Maybe buy a big world map that you can put somewhere prominent in your home. And maybe buy the book Operation World, where it just covers a, a country a page. We have Refugee Hope Partners, of course, Erin Foles. You can look at her in our membership directory. She's a leader in that organization, and they're seeking to minister to the refugees at Sandy Fork's apartment complex. There are 40 nations there in one apartment complex. 40 nations. We can be involved in tutoring and helping and school helps, befriending, that sort of thing. So God is a concern for the nations were to have the same concern. So here you have in chapter 10, it looks like just this genealogy, and yet we're reminded of our interconnectedness, our cousinhood, that as racial or prejudicial or ethnocentric kind of things begin to, we want to put those to death and move towards, even as, even as Cole prayed, that we would be looking to befriend people different with the hopes of sharing the gospel. Okay, so that's chapter 10. If we stopped right here, we'd still be left with what happened how they all get here, how all the nations become as they are, how all the languages get divided as they were. But we have chapter 11. Chapter 11 explains chapter 10. So when Moses was recording this, he's not writing in a chronological fashion. 11 precedes 10. Why does he do it this way? Well, I think he's showing the emphasis to rest on the Tower of Babel. This is what God, this was the cause of all the nations and the disbursement of languages. And in chapter 11, this is where we see how man proposes to, like Adam and Eve, kind of grab the reins with God, but God disposes. So what does man propose? Well, look with me at chapter 11, verses 1 to 4. He says, Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as the people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the earth. Now remember, we, you know, we're kind of going through this chapter by chapter. 
We saw in chapter 1, 28. We saw in chapter 9, verses 1 and 27, how God instructed both Adam and then after the flood, he gave the same cultural mandate uh, to Noah to be fruitful, to multiply, and to fill the earth. So God's intention for his image bearers, that's you and that's me, you bear the image of God, by the way, even if you don't claim the name Christ as your Savior. You bear the image of God. And the image of God, God has chosen to create us to be his representatives, to be his ambassadors, as it were, to go out into the world, to cause the world to flourish so that his name might be glorified. To glorify any other name is silly. It's like promoting a, a second-rate basketball player when the star is right over here. And so God has created us to cause the earth to flourish that his name might be glorified. But you see what they did. They proposed another way. They, they chose an alternative path. Like Adam and Eve, they chose to disobey the word of God. So instead of spreading so that the name of God would be glorified, they gathered and wanted their own names glorified. And, and this was a corporate event. You see the universality of their sin. They said to one another, it says, let us make bricks. Let us build a city. Let us build a tower. Let us make a name for ourselves. So you see the corporate nature of sin. And it shouldn't surprise you that they're in rebellion to God. The leader Nimrod, which we would find in chapter 10, verse 10, his name means to rebel. So what we're to see here is there are a group of people, that these nations are together, and they're in rebellion to God. God has called them to spread and glorify his name. They gather and seek to promote their own name. And it's crystallized in the building of the tower. This ziggurat, this kind of this superstructure, kind of in stairs, all the way up into the heavens. It says, with its top in the heavens. Now, that word Babel in the Akkadian language means a gate to the gods. So this isn't something just to give a good view for military protection. This is an attempt to be like God. To achieve Godhead. To move into the realm of the divine. You know how Eden was a worship center, really, for the man and the woman to worship God, so you have this tower. It's like a man-made worship center so that we could worship men. That's why the word Babel is used throughout Scripture, or Babylon, as an expression for false religion. Our attempt to be like God, rather than living within the creaturely limits that God gives to us for His own and by His own grace. So here they are, they're building this tower. But you see the motivation. Our eyes aren't to focus on the project itself, but on why they're doing it. And that is that they want to build a name for themselves. They want to build a reputation. They want the fame. They're not satisfied to say, I bear the image of God. I want my own self-image. I want to create a self-image. And you see it's motivated by fear because it says, lest we be dispersed among the or lest we be dispersed across the face of the earth. Uh, they're, they're hunkering together, safety in numbers, right? Uh, they should be trusting God who delivered Noah, their forebear, just probably 150 years before, and now they're moving to self-protection. What are they looking for? They want personal significance and personal security. We're really not different than they are, are we? I mean, don't we love our name being recognized? I mean, don't we love to be praised? Don't we want to build a name? 
Don't we want to be? Who wants anonymity? We're in fear of anonymity. I mean, to not be recognized, to walk in a room and no one know you, it's a horrible feeling. That's why it's very difficult. And, and, and as a church, you are wonderful about greeting visitors because to come in a church alone is difficult. You don't know anybody. Nobody knows you. It's a hard place to walk into, cold. It's difficult. We want a name. It drives business. It drives politics. Seeking reputation, a name, seeking praise, it drives our lives. It drives entertainment, sports. It even drives some Christian ministries. Uh, you know, sadly, Christian ministries usually were named after the causes that they were seeking to change. Now they're named after the people that have founded them. We want a name. We want a name. Do you see this? Seeking a name and a reputation, trying to establish, isn't this great, isn't this what Facebook or our Instagram, isn't it often to promote a name, to promote myself, to be recognized? I mean, do you see this as a form of rebellion against God? He's given you life, breath, gifts, talents, opportunities. You say, hey, hey Tom, I've really worked hard at developing what I have become. And you may have, no doubt, but he's given you the energy to do that. And yet to take all those things that he's given to you and just use it to build your own name, your own kingdom, your own recognition, do you not see that as a form of rebellion? Consider for a minute just how often you will steer a conversation to something you've done well. Or just consider how much, how important it is to you to be recognized for what you do. That if someone else gets credit for something you've participated with and you don't get mentioned, how it galls you or frustrates you. I mean, consider how often you think about how you are perceived by others rather than how you care or love others. These are all indications that the spirit of pride that was at Babel, that was in the garden, still is within the heart of man. The inclinations of man that God knows from Genesis 6. But not just that, not just desire to build it. We can identify with these with these people just by our own love for security. Think about it for a minute. We are a safety conscious people. I mean, if anything goes wrong, we're establishing laws to try to stop it from ever happening again. We put in a, this is why you can't get peanuts on airplanes anymore. It's incredible. Do you realize security is an illusion? Now, I'm not saying be reckless. I'm not saying live presumptuously as if I'm going to do anything and God will take care of me. I'm not saying that. But I'm saying this idea that we think we can eliminate harm, hurt. We are fools. We can't do it, and yet so much of our time and our effort, especially those of us who are young parents, we're so terrified. And yet we're called to trust God, that God is our protector. He says, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. God is calling us to run to him for protection and not hunkering together with a bunch of other human beings trying to foster some security that is just an illusion. But not just longing for a name or longing for security. We long for transcendence. I mean, we want to reach the stars, right? We want to put a person on, on Mars. We want to seek immortality. There is billions of dollars being invested in the business of extending life. Some people think that by 2050, we can live to 1,000 years old. Really? But they want that because they don't have the knowledge and the hope 
of one that has entered death and come out of death. We don't want to live within limits. We don't like limits. We don't like being told this is truth, this is not truth. We don't like how God has created us with these creaturely limits. We want to define truth. We want to define, that's the whole move of gender being a social construct. He created the male and female. No, 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 he created a bunch more. Yeah, we're, we know this. We're giving correction to the creator. Or listen, we want to define personhood. So right now there is a case before the New York State Supreme Court where an animal rights group is arguing for an elephant in the Bronx Zoo named Happy. Now, why Happy doesn't argue for himself, I don't know why. But, but there is an animal rights group that is arguing for his personage that he might be freed because of the anxiety of living so long in the zoo. People don't want to live within the limits. But do you see the destructive power of pride and arrogance? Now, let me be clear. I'm not saying that those who seek their own name, those who seek their own security, they may be really effective at life in terms of achieving a name, achieving wealth. I'm just saying it won't last. It won't last. Notice what Moses says when he says that they made bricks for stone. In other words, they're patting themselves in their ingenuity to make these bricks. Now, Moses knew a thing or two about bricks. And he knows that bricks as a foundation are not clearly as good as stone. So they chose man-made bricks rather than God-made stone for a foundation. The problem with pride is that it will crumble. It will crack. Your name, your kingdom, your recognition, your fame, it will fail. It will falter. Over time, it will crack. You know, there's this beautiful... A uh, picture of the Tower of Babel in a Vienna museum. Forget the artist's name, but, but standing back from a distance, you see it there, this ziggurat, and, uh, and it, it looks like it could have looked. You know, there's probably over 30 have been discovered in the Middle East. And, but the interesting thing is when you get up real close to the foundation, you need a magnifying glass but you see cracks in the foundation. The artist has put these very faint cracks that cannot be seen without help. So it's a picture of there is man in all of his glory seeking God, and he's going to reach the heavens in his own power and capacity. And yet they don't even recognize that in the foundation there are all these little cracks that are just going to show that nothing will last. So what are you giving yourself to? How, do you, how much do you strive to preserve, promote, extend your name? Uh, how much do you, do you create an identity on who you are or what you've done or who you're trying to become? Is it in academia? Is it in business? Is it in relationships? Maybe it's in religion. I'm going to be the holiest person. That's going to be my identity that I'm going to strive at pursuing him. It's a fool's errand. What man proposes, God disposes. And that's what we see in verses 5 to 8. Look with me at 5 to 8. He says, And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, they have one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down there and 
confuse their language, that Trinitarian language that you see in Genesis 1, so that they may not understand one another's speech. So notice what God does here. So you have the speech of humans in verses 1 to 4. You have the speech of God in 5 to 8. And he says, come, let us go down to the children of man. That can be translated, the children of Adam. In other words, they're no different than their father, Adam. Adam was seeking glory, so they're seeking their own glory. But, but notice the scorn here. He says, come, let us go down. Notice how in man's greatest effort to reach the heavens, the one in heaven has to stoop down to see it. It's so insignificant. It's so paltry that it can't even be seen from heaven. And so God comes, Yahweh comes down. And Yahweh comes down to bring judgment. But I want you to see, and I think you've seen this throughout these chapters, the judgment of God is always layered with mercy. It's always layered with mercy. I mean, you think about our own judgment. How oftentimes we have this swelling of self-righteousness that brings about a judgment of another person, and there is no mercy in our souls. And yet, even in the judgment of God, we see the mercy of God. Where do I see it? Well, I see it in the prevention of further sin. Look with me at verse 6. He says, behold, they are one people. They have one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. A lot of people think here, God's a little nervous. Hey, there's a rival in town now. There's a threat to God. God's sovereignty is now maybe going to be challenged for the first time. That's not the case. Now, I think here, we ought to hear God here as a, as a father. As a father, uh, wanting to prevent the further spiraling into apostasy of his people. You, you see a father trying to, to step in the way of these children. He doesn't destroy the, the tower. He leaves it as an, un, as an incomplete edifice to man's attempt. He doesn't destroy it. He confuses the language. He slows them down to stop this self-destructive, you know, this unity in evil. I think, we can, I think we can feel with this. I mean, if you're a parent here, and you see your child going in an errant way? Do you just sit back and say, well, they got to learn? No, you, you get in the way. You speak. You, you, you wave your hands. You say, uh, don't go in this way. If you continue to walk in this way, it's going to bring destruction. Because you love them. You're motivated to stop them because you love them. Indifference would be a sign of hate. And this is what God is doing. He brings judgment. And so he confuses the languages. The building is stopped. So then the Tower of Babel becomes kind of a, a symbol of the foolishness of men, the confusion of men, the inability of men and women to find God apart from God finding them. That's why he says there in verse 9, he says, Therefore its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the languages of all the earth, and from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of the earth. So this gives way then to chapter 10. But notice how he calls the place Babel. Now, as I said, Babel in Akkadian means the gate of the gods, but Babel in Hebrew means something different. It means confusion. It's a mockery. It's the babble of a baby. It makes no sense. He's saying here that our, our self-salvation projects, that's how Tim Keller would call them, our self-salvation projects, we're going to make a name for ourselves. We're going to build a kingdom for ourselves. We're going to establish ourselves in the community as somebody of great renown, or wisdom, or power, or someone to get those efforts. And again, it can be as much as I'm going to seek license 
And I'm going to seek to try to find the meaning of life and security and the pleasures of life. And I'm going to strive for it. It can be that way. Or it can be morality and religiosity. And I'm going to pursue the meaning of life and purpose by what I can do for God and how I'm used of God and all the things that I'm, I'm known for about God. And I can try to find meaning and value and find fame and recognition through those ways as well. But they're all going to fail. There you've got the cracks in the foundation. It's made of brick. It's man-made brick. It's not, it's not God-made stone. No, God has to save. And this is what you see kind of just latent in the passage. You have God moving with judgment layered with mercy. He's going to divide so that he can unite around his son and not around some man-made political ideology or some educational philosophy or for some other pathway to you. There is no uniting around those things. It's around the Son, so God divides, so as to unite around His Son, Christ. Now, this was the promise back in Zephaniah. So the prophets saw this. In Zephaniah 3.9, the prophet writes, For at that time I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech, that all of them may call upon the name of the Lord and serve Him with one accord. So the prophets knew that the Lord would be uniting these languages, but it's going to be a pure speech. And of course, we see this as you march forward into the New Testament. Let me remind you of Jesus Christ living, dying, being raised. And he said that I must be raised. So another comforter might come. That other comforter would be the Spirit. And the Spirit comes, and he will bring about a unity. Not around man-made objects, but around the Son himself. And we see this unity come in Acts chapter 2. Let me read this for you. He says, now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. Think 70. And at the sound of the multitude, and at this sound, that is the sound of the Spirit, the multitude came together. They were bewildered because each was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, are not all these who are speaking Galileans? How is it that we hear each of us in our own native language? We hear them telling in our own tongue the mighty works of God. So the Spirit of God doesn't collapse all the languages in the one, but he causes from the confusion of Babel to have the clarity of the gospel preached. The mighty acts of God. What is the mighty act of God? The mighty act of God is God fulfilling his promise to send one. The seed of the woman becomes the offspring of Abraham, becomes the offspring of David. And of course, Paul tells us in Galatians 3.13 that it's to the seed, not seeds, but to Jesus Christ as the seed. And this is why Matthew begins with a genealogy. A genealogy. He's the son of Abraham, and he's the son of David. Jesus Christ has come into our world to live before God righteously and to carry our sins to reconcile us to God. Listen, sins before exile us from God, right? Adam sinned, he was exiled out of the garden. Cain sinned, he was exiled from the presence of God. They sinned, they were exiled into the earth. And so Jesus comes and enters in exile by bearing our sin so as to draw us back to God. This is what Jesus means when he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's, he's bearing our exile so that we 
might be drawn back to God. This is why Peter in chapter 4 of Acts preaches. He says, there is no other name under heaven by which you must be saved. Why the name? Or in Philippians 2, God has highly exalted him and given him a name above every name that at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow and every tongue confess because it's his name now that we find a unity. The confusion of Babel has given way to the clarity of the gospel in Christ. I mean, friends, if you're a Christian here, I mean, this ought to be a, a call to pursue humility. I, I, I mean, this ought to be a, a call to reject, to abandon, building my name and, and building my kingdom, building my recognition, seeking to promote his name. Uh, the name, by the way, in Revelation 22, 4, where it says the name he will write on our foreheads. Uh, this might be a point of repentance for you. Maybe you've tried to build an identity on your grades or on your business, or, or you've tried to build it on your morality or how you've established yourself in the community or even in this church. Repent, as you've heard both Cole pray and uh, you've heard Colby even speak before we sang about this idea of faith and repentance. Have the faith God, he's going to bring forgiveness to us as we appeal to him. It might be a call for repentance for us, but it's surely a call to rejoice, to rejoice in God who's bringing all the nations to worship the Son Christ. That's where our unity will be. This is why we want to be, we strive to have a culture of a God-centered church, or excuse me, a gospel-centered church. We want the gospel. We don't want uniformity here. Don't want you all to look alike and act alike. Uniformity in the things of man will crumble like the tower. We want diversity, but we want diversity united in the unity around the gospel. And then we bring great glory to God. And then there's this clarity instead of confusion. And that's what we see in Revelation chapter 5 where he says, And they sang a new song, Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals. For you were slain and with your blood you ransomed people for God. That's what Jesus has done through the cross. People from every tribe, every language, every people, and every nation. So the 70 nations that were dispersed were going to be drawn together through the gospel. Now, if you're here and you're not a Christian, let me just warn you to consider again. I mean, look through history. I think it was de Gaulle that said, graveyards are filled with indispensable men. The names were built, reputations. Where are they? Where are they? You know, we had a week at the beach, Carol and I, and uh, with a lot of grandchildren there, there were a lot of holes dug. And, uh, and a, lot of, a lot of castles built and a lot of towers made. They were all over the place. And deep holes, mind you. What I enjoyed was every morning, smooth. Nothing there. You wouldn't even know a tower had been built. You wouldn't even know a hole had been dug you wouldn't have known that people were even there. Anything built by man will not last. Only that which is done for Christ. Just ask God for grace. If you have questions about the faith, come forward. Talk to a member in this church. Just speak with somebody next to you. I have no doubt they'll be able to explain to you the beauty, the unity that we have in this Jesus who has come to bring clarity through the gospel instead of the confusion of this life. Let's just take a moment now, and this is a time where I'm asking you to
to seek God, to ask for wisdom. Uh, maybe you're here and in your idleness you need admonishment. Maybe you need to just be strengthened or encouraged. Maybe you're broken right now under the weight of relational or financial or some other issue. Maybe you haven't called out to God all week. Well, just for these next few moments, just ask God to reveal himself to you through the beauty of his son. Seek his help. And then I'll pray for us in just a moment.